and welcome to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Today's episode is going to cover a story that I had never even heard of prior to doing this episode. With Christmas coming up here shortly, I wanted to cover a story that happened around this time of year, like um, I've done in the past with the John Bonet and the Christmas Cabin episodes, but I couldn't think of any other prominent Christmas time you know, true crime stories off the top of my head. So I went to good old Google and I literally just searched for Christmas murders. And this was the first story that popped up. Once I started reading some articles, I was shocked that I had never heard of this because it is definitely up there with some of the most shocking and heinous crimes that I've ever covered. And I'm guessing that most of you have also never heard of this story, so buckle up because you are in for quite a ride. It is a wild one. You can find Weird on the Rocks on Facebook and Instagram at Weird on the Rocks Podcast and the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Please subscribe wherever you're listening now so that you always get the newest episodes right as they are released. Before we get into the good stuff, I want to share today's beverage of choice. Tonight, I'm drinking a good old Dirty Shirley, which is a cocktail of vodka, grenadine, and Sprite. I actually just had one of these for the first time at a Halloween party, and I've heard of Dirty Shirley's, but I had no idea what was in them. I've never ordered one, never made one, and they had all the things at the party to make one, and it was so good. And it's so simple. Uh, you know, I always have grenadine in the house. I always have vodka in the house. Uh, just had to get some Sprite and it's really good. I also added some maraschino cherries to it, of course. Um, and it's like a nice little festive drink. It's red and it just looks cute and it's delicious. It's a good Christmas drink for sure. All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers and let's get weird. Dayton, Ohio, December 1992. Downtown Dayton was celebrating Christmas with a special holiday event, including a tree lighting in the town square. Lights were strung around the town, live music could be found on street corners, and joy was in the air. But for a group of teenagers who called themselves the Downtown Posse, joy and festivity was the last thing they were trying to find. The group, led by 19-year-old Marvalis Keene, included his girlfriend, 16-year-old Laura Taylor, 19-year-old Demarcus Smith, and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Heather Matthews. Each member of the downtown posse had troubled childhoods and family life, causing them to bond with one another quickly and become their own small family unit. 
The leader of the group, 19-year-old Marvalis, was said to have been a good kid growing up, getting good grades in school, playing sports, and having no criminal history. However, in 1991, his brother was shot and killed during a robbery gone wrong, which was extremely hard on 18-year-old Marvalis, and it was said that this traumatic event completely changed him and his personality. Those close to him said that he became extremely angry and distanced himself from friends and family. Soon after his brother's death, Marvalis moved to California to live with his father and get away from the town where his brother had died. But his father and him did not get along, so he moved back to Dayton in August of 1992. He moved back in with his mother, but in December of 1992, he decided to live in a cheap motel in downtown Dayton with his 16-year-old girlfriend, Laura Taylor. On December 23, 1992, Laura and Marvalis were still living in the motel together, but were running out of money quickly. They had the other two downtown posse members, Demarcus and Heather, visiting with them in their room. When Laura told the group, quote, let's get some drama in our lives, end quote. She then presented a plan to go out and start robbing people. The first person Laura suggested was someone she knew, a 34-year-old man named Joseph Wilkerson. Laura knew that Wilkerson often paid sex workers for sex, so she approached him and said that she and Heather were willing to have sex with him for money. They suggested coming over the next day, Christmas Eve, to his home for an orgy, and he agreed. The next day, Heather, Laura, and her boyfriend Marvalis walked to Joseph Wilkerson's house, taking with them two handguns. Joseph let the group inside his house where he made them cocktails. After a bit of talking, Laura took Joseph into his room where he believes the orgy she had promised is about to take place. Soon after, Heather and Marvalis enter the room and they all proceed to undress and pretend as though sexual acts are about to begin. During the process of undressing, Marvalis takes out a handgun from his pants and points it at Joseph, ordering him onto the bed. Laura and Heather then tie him to the bed and begin to rummage around his home looking for anything of value. They take a hair curler and hair dryer, a phone, and a TV. The girls then go into Joseph's garage and begin loading the items into his car. While in the garage, the girls find a gun that Joseph owned. Marvalis takes Joseph's gun back into the bedroom, piles blankets and pillows on top of Joseph, and then shoots him in the chest with his own gun. Laura and Heather return to the room to find Joseph still alive and Marvalis freaking out. He then hands Laura one of his own guns that they brought, and she shoots Joseph Wilkerson in the head, killing him. The three of them left in Joseph's car and went to a nearby friend's house where they took naps and recharged. After their naps, they went back to the motel where they picked up Heather's boyfriend, Demarcus, a man who was no stranger to criminal activity. The four of them decided to walk around downtown Dayton looking for their next victim. 18-year-old Danita Gullette, who had a two-year-old daughter at home, was using a payphone when the group approached her. DeMarcus pointed a gun at Danita and demanded her to give him her purse, which she did. They also forced her to give them her jacket and shoes. As Danita was pleading for them not to shoot her, DeMarcus shot nine bullets into the phone booth, hitting Danita in multiple spots. The group then walked away wearing her jacket and shoes, leaving Danita clinging to life in the phone booth. She was transferred to a nearby hospital where she soon was pronounced dead. 
Once upon arriving back at their motel room, they went through Danita's purse and found that she only had 50 cents on her. As this was happening, the police were investigating the crime scene, finding that five out of the nine shots fired had hit Danita. The police discovered that the ammunition used were 25 caliber blazer aluminum bullets, which were the cheapest bullets on the market, and ammunition that was generally used for target practice, not usually for hunting and were rarely found at crime scenes. At this point, the downtown posse had moved to Heather's house and were joined by two more friends, 16-year-old Wendy Cottrell and her boyfriend Marvin Washington. Heather's ex-boyfriend, 28-year-old Jeffrey Wright, also came over to the house, where he and Heather proceeded to have a fight over unknown reasons. During the altercation, Jeffrey grabbed Heather by the hair and dragged her into her room, in front of her friends and her 19-year-old boyfriend, Demarcus. Seeing this man assault his girlfriend before his eyes, Demarcus follows them into the bedroom and starts firing at Jeffrey. Jeffrey eventually lays on the ground and tells Demarcus that he'll leave if he stops shooting at him. However, Demarcus continues to shoot at him, but only hits him once in the leg. Jeffrey escapes the house, goes straight to a neighbor's home, and calls the police. The next day, Christmas Day, 1992... 16-year-old Laura Taylor decides that she is not done with their killing spree and knows who their next target should be, her 19-year-old ex-boyfriend, Richard Maddox. Laura went to Richard's parents' house where she got him to come outside for a talk. They got into his truck and drove away, but Demarcus, Marvalis, and Heather were closely following behind in Joseph Wilkerson's stolen car. Eventually, Richard noticed them following and began to speed up when Laura reaches over and shoots Richard in the head, causing him to lose control of the car and crash into a tree. Laura is uninjured and after taking Richard's wallet, exits the truck and gets into the car her friends are driving behind them. Police are called to the scene where they discover the same blazer ammunition used in the Danita Golette murder, and witnesses are able to describe the group and the car that they were driving. The downtown posse then returns to their motel room where they lay low for the rest of the day. The next day, December 26, 1992, they go to a nearby gas station looking for yet another victim. Demarcus and Marvellis spot a woman putting air in her tires and start to openly fire at her, but they both miss and she is able to run away, but they steal her car. The group then heads to a nearby convenience store. Laura goes inside, buys some gum, and starts talking to the employee behind the counter, 38-year-old Sarah Abraham, whose family owned the store. Laura and Sarah began talking about what kind of juice the store carries and that she wants some but can't afford any. 71-year-old Jimmy Thompson is also in the store and overhears the conversation and spots Laura the money to buy a bottle of juice for herself. Soon after, Demarcus and Marvalis enter the store with their guns and tell Sarah Abraham to empty the cash register. She hands over all of the money in the till, which is $44, and then Marvalis shoots her twice in the head. He then fires at another customer and employee and misses, and 71-year-old Jimmy Thompson lays on the ground and pretends to have been shot. Sarah Abraham was transported to the hospital where she died from her wounds several days later. Once at the scene, the police discovered the same cheap blazer ammunition, and the description of the car and people matched the descriptions found from the Maddox and Golette murders. DeMarcus and Marvellis began to get nervous and paranoid, knowing that too many people had witnessed these crimes. 
They began wearing disguises when they left their house and switching out the license plates on the cars they were using. DeMarcus and Marvellis also began to worry about Wendy Cottrell and her boyfriend Marvin Washington, who were present when Laura's ex-boyfriend Jeffrey was killed. DeMarcus and Marvellis ask if Wendy and Marvin want to hang out and pick up them and their friend Nicholas Woodson and start driving around town. While driving, DeMarcus and Marvellis are openly discussing the murders that they had committed over the past several days. After driving around for a while, Nicholas asks to be dropped off somewhere, and DeMarcus, Marvellis, Wendy, and Marvin end up at a vacant gravel pit, where they force Wendy and Marvin out of the car and start asking them questions about what they had seen and if they had spoken to the police. Wendy and Marvin are insistent that they hadn't said anything, but DeMarcus and Marvallis don't believe them and shoot and kill them both. While this is unfolding, Nicholas Woodson, who had just been dropped off, was freaking out about the information the men had been bragging about while driving around town. He feared that something had happened to his friends after he was dropped off and knew he couldn't just sit by and do nothing. Nicholas decided to call the police and inform them that DeMarcus and Marvellis confessed to him that they had committed multiple murders. On the phone, the police asked Nicholas to come down to the station for an in-person meeting, but he was too scared to leave his house, fearful that the men were watching him. With the new information, the police started reviewing the crimes that the downtown posse had committed, slowly putting the terrifying pieces together. At first, they were skeptical of the person calling them on the phone and refusing to come down to the station, but they slowly realized that this person had vital information that had not been published in the papers or shared on the news, and they knew that they finally had the names of the murderers. At this point, the police were also very worried for the safety of Nicholas Woodson, knowing that he was now in a very vulnerable spot. The police decided to go to Nicholas's house and pick him up themselves and bring him down to the station. While there, Nicholas told them the exact make and model of the car the two men were currently driving. But before the car could even be called in, another officer named John Huber, who happened to be out on patrol, calls the car in for the plates not matching the registered car, not knowing that this car was connected to multiple murders and that he was dealing with very dangerous people. Officer Huber starts tailing the car, and eventually, DeMarcus jumps out of it and begins to run away. Huber decides to continue to follow the car, which at this time contains Marvallis as well as Heather and Laura, and he allows DeMarcus to run away. And he allows DeMarcus to flee. He eventually pulls the car over, still just thinking it was a case of a stolen vehicle and having no idea who he was actually pulling over. He immediately sees several guns in the car and tells the occupants to get out with their hands up. All three were cooperative and got into the patrol car without a fight. When they were found, Marvallis was wearing the necklace of Wendy Cottrell, the coat of Danita Garrett, and had the knife of Joseph Wilkerson in his pocket. Police soon found DeMarcus at a nearby house and also brought him in. Once at the police station, the four were interviewed separately. Laura Taylor asked for a lawyer and refused to talk. However, the other three discussed their crimes openly and without any hesitation. Heather decided to take a deal that allowed her to testify and give a full confession in return for not receiving the death penalty. And Laura and Demarcus, who were both minors, were exempt from the death penalty. Laura and Heather were both sentenced to life in prison and are currently serving their time at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville, Ohio. 
DeMarcus was also sentenced to life in prison and is serving his sentence at the Mansfield Correctional Institute. Marvallis Keene was indicted by a grand jury on eight counts of aggravated murder and six counts of aggravated burglary. He waived his rights to a jury trial and was instead tried by a three-judge panel and was found guilty on everything. However, the judges combined several of the counts, resulting in a total of five counts of murder against Marvallis. He received the death penalty for each count, totaling five death sentences. July 20th, 2009 was the day before Marvallis Keene was to be executed. He had his last meal at 4 p.m. where he requested a porterhouse steak, one pound of jumbo fried shrimp, french fries, onion rings, rolls and butter, two plums, a mango, a pound of grapes, two bottles of Pepsi, and two bottles of root beer. According to others in the jail, he was extremely restless that night, pacing around his cell and even had to have his attorney get him a sleeping pill. The next day, he died by lethal injection. No friends or family were present, and his last words were, quote, I have no words, end quote. The heinous murders committed by the downtown posse, often referred to as the Christmas killings, still haunt the victims' families and Dayton, Ohio as a whole. Detective Doyle Burke, who worked the case, said, quote, It will never be forgotten by the public because it was so heinous and so sinister, even in the light of the things that are going on today, end quote. It is still unclear exactly what prompted the group to begin their killing spree that winter day. And Burke said, quote, They were just killing people randomly for nothing, literally nothing. There was not even a motive in these cases. It was just for fun, end quote. And Dayton Police Sergeant George Hammond said, quote, They were like a shark. Once they tasted blood, they couldn't stop, end quote. Rhonda Gallette, the sister of then 18-year-old Danita, who was murdered while in the payphone booth, said, quote, I don't really celebrate the holidays like other people. I go back in my mind and I think about the day I found out that my sister was killed, end quote. Rhonda became the legal guardian of Danita's two-year-old daughter and works as a victim advocate with the Montgomery County Victim Witness Division and said, quote, I try to shift my focus off myself and what has happened to me and what has happened to my family members onto service. I serve in my church. I serve in my community. I like feeding the homeless. So from September 1st to January 1st every year, I serve, end quote. All right, well, that is going to be it for today's episode. As I mentioned at the intro, I was shocked to have never heard of this case strictly because of just how shocking it is that these people just went on this killing spree for literally no reason. These people had no motive and to this day have never said what exactly prompted them to start killing and to keep it going after they had killed one person. It's like the uh, police sergeant said they were like a shark and once they tasted blood, they couldn't stop. And I think, unfortunately for some people, uh, you know, killing is like this adrenaline rush for them. It gives them a high. They feel powerful. You know, I think most people, if we killed someone, we would probably be horrified of what we did. And other people, it's um, it just starts the beginning of a sick obsession that they have and they just can't stop. It's kind of weird, but sometimes I can find some comfort in the murders that have very clear motives or, you know, happen between people that know each other 
because it's easy to kind of disconnect yourself from it and say, well, that'll never happen to me. Like, I don't fight with my husband like that, or I don't have a stalker or whatever the situation might be. But with cases like this, they're truly the scariest to me because it's just so random. These people, some of them knew the downtown posse members, which I hate that name. That is just like cringe for me to even say the downtown posse. Some of these people knew them, but they were doing nothing wrong. You know, this Joseph Wilkerson guy, he happened to know Lauren Heather, um, the ex-boyfriend. Yes, they were in a fight, but he didn't deserve to die for that. But then there's people like Danita Golette, who's just in the payphone, Sarah Abraham, who's just in a store doing her job. It's terrifying to know that you can just be in the wrong place at the wrong time sometimes. And obviously the chances of randomly being murdered like this are extremely, extremely small, but it's not impossible. It still happens, sadly, as this case shows. There have always been and will always be bad and evil people who decide to do things like this and enjoy seeing others in pain and get off on it. They get some sick type of high from killing people. This case is interesting to me because, you know, Marvalis kind of said that he was the ringleader of the group and, you know, was considered the leader. Um, but it didn't really seem that there was one person that was ordering the others. They all seemed to be very committed to this killing spree and were all involved, all played their part. It didn't seem like anyone was being forced. Obviously, we were not there. We don't know what happened, but they all seemed uh to consent to what they were doing as a group. Laura Taylor, who was 16 at the time, Laura Taylor is the one who originally said, you know, let's go get some drama in our lives, which kind of prompted this whole thing. And then it was her idea to target Joseph Wilkerson. But, you know, she was 16 years old from pictures, looked to be a very small and petite person. I really just don't see Laura herself forcing the other members to kill people without them consenting to it in some way. It's very scary what people are capable of when they're in a group and being influenced by others. And they often feel this false sense of protection that they wouldn't have if they were just out there doing this on their own. There's like the safety in numbers. Um, and sadly, you know, it did take the police several days to find out who was doing this. They kept bouncing around to different places, using different cars, and it definitely went on longer than it should have and longer than I hope it would go on in today's time because people would have cell phones and take pictures of them. And um, that is one thing that we definitely have on our side now is everyone is a witness at all times now. We all have recording devices at the ready and something like this would have not gone on for three days. I would love to know how these young adults and teenagers were feeling during this time. Like, did they really think they weren't going to get caught? Did they know they were going to get caught and they were just waiting and just figured, well, we're going to go to jail anyways. Might as well kill as many people as we can. Um, you know, the money didn't really seem to be the motive. Uh, they killed Danita Gallette, who had 50 cents in her pocket. Uh, Sarah Abraham at the store. She had already handed over the $44 and then they killed her. It's just, it's just very sad and sick. I can't imagine being the family member of one of those innocent victims, knowing, you know, that your loved one did absolutely nothing wrong and they were just collateral in the path of these evil people. I am very glad that the three remaining 
members are all in jail for life and are paying for what they did. Uh, in December of last year, Laura Taylor was up for parole and was fortunately denied and will be up for parole again in 2026. Uh, but I'm guessing she will be denied again. As she and the other two members, Heather and DeMarcus, are very obviously dangerous to society and are in jail where they should be, as I believe. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I know this was kind of a quick episode, but I appreciate you guys still listening and supporting the show. And whatever you celebrate, I hope you have a safe and happy holiday season. And I will see you in 2023. All right. Until next time, cheers and stay weird. (laughs) 